0: I'm Mark Caro and welcome to episode 31 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is Jeff Murphy, singer-songwriter with the brilliant Power Pop band Shoes, as well as producer of bands such as Material Issue and Local H. Jeff Murphy, his brother John, and their friend Gary Klebe formed Shoes in their hometown of Zion, Illinois in 1974. Something was different about them from the start. For one, each member was an equally contributing songwriter and singer, a pattern that continues through today. Also, they grew up listening to and enjoying the same records. The Beatles, Big Star, and other bands that emphasize melody and concision So Jeff, John, and Gary each is a master of the three-minute pop song. When you listen to a Shoes album, the songs all fit together with no drop off from one member's song to the next. They're also a band that had recorded three albums by the time of the release of what many people consider their debut, Black Vinyl Shoes from 1977. Yet when the band released Black Vinyl Shoes on its own label, Black Vinyl Records, many thought they had come out of nowhere because they didn't play live. They made music in basements with Jeff running the tape machine and to the snobbier members of the music community, that meant they hadn't properly paid their dues. No matter, their songs were instant earworms. Electra Records signed them and sent them to England to record their major label debut, Present Tense, with producer Mike Stone. That album yielded the undeniable singles Tomorrow Night, Where Tomorrow Night Too Late, plus such standout tracks as In My Arms Again Somewhere, and Now and Then. The follow-up, Tongue Twister, brought Fleetwood Mac producer Richard Dashut into the fold and yielded more timeless tunes, including Your Imagination, Burned Out Love, Only in My Sleep, and Karen. Because Shoes had shot videos for several present tense songs to air on British music shows, the band was well positioned when MTV debuted on August 1st, 1981. The music channel showed four Shoes videos on that very first day and kept the band in rotation early on. Yet album sales didn't match their reviews and acclaim, and by Shoes' third album for Electra, Boomerang, much of the label support had evaporated. Even though the album includes such standout songs as Too Soon, Mayday, and curiosity. The Electra relationship ended, drummer Skip Meyer left, and Shoes were back to recording and releasing their own albums the band recorded at its own studio, Short Order Recorder, which would become Jeff's professional home for the next 20 years, starting with 1984's Silhouette, 1989's Eclectic Stolen Wishes, 1994's Harder Rocking Propeller, and the energetic 1995 live set Fret Buzz followed. Meanwhile, Jeff Murphy was establishing himself as a producer at Short Order Recorder in Zion. The late Jim Ellison, a Shoes fan, brought his band Material Issue to Jeff, who recorded "Renee Remains the Same, Valerie Loves Me, Diane, and the rest of the album that became Material Issue's 1991 debut on Mercury Records international pop overthrow jeff produced the follow-up destination universe as well in our conversation he discusses his experiences with material issue and what he thinks went wrong he also talks about his work with scott lucas and his band local h who would be signed by island records as digital technology enabled more bands to do what shoes had done decades earlier record at home and release their own music Jeff, John, and Gary finally shuttered their studio and label in the early 2000s. Coming full circle, they recorded much of their 2012 album, Ignition, in Gary's basement in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and it was one of their strongest albums. All three songwriters were in top form, offering such highlights as Gary's Head vs. Heart, John's Diminishing Returns, Jeff's Out of Round,
1: round.
0: and their collaborative Goofy Stonesy rocker, Hot mess. Jeff, Gary, and John continue to write and record music. Jeff had a solo album, Can't Believer, in 2007, and Gary is working on one now, and the three are looking forward to the next Shoes project, whatever that may be. Jeff discusses how Shoes pulls off the rare feat of functioning as a democracy with multiple songwriters, and he explains the band's creative processes. If you listen to the recent Chris Stamey episode, you'll note a contrasting approach to making tuneful music. Stamey comes to his work, With a deep knowledge of music theory, the shoes guys go on instinct, sometimes not even knowing what chords they're playing. Yet they make indelible music all the same, and Jeff, like Chris Stamey, has noticed the different smells of analog tape. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Jeff Murphy. So Zion, Illinois is where you guys grew up. Um, it's you, your brother, John, well, what's the age difference between you guys? Oh, uh, you were a year apart. Okay. A, and year and a, we, a year and a week. And he's a year older, right? He's a year older. Yes. Right. Okay. And then there's Gary. Yes. And Gary Kleeb. and Gary had, uh, so Gary, my understanding is that Gary and John, they were playing together in form shoes and then you got this recorder and you started recording them. And then it was pretty clear that it was really the three of you were the ones making the music. Cause that, right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, more or less. I mean, um, John and Gary, the band didn't really exist until we started recording until I started recording with them. They they um, it was talk. And uh, it was funny because they would they would um, send letters back and forth because uh, for a while, John was going to college um, at a local uh, community college and Gary was down in Champaign. So they would write back and forth about, hey, man, you hear, check out the new uh, Bowie album or uh, hey, have you heard of big star or whatever? And they would talk about shoes as if it was this super group and they would draw these these really funny cartoons of them. You you know, John did a, 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 a imitation Rolling Stone cover and it was just Gary and, and him on stage. And you see all these fans reaching up and it was done in the, in the, in the format of a Rolling Stone cover. Uh, And I think Gary still has it framed somewhere at his house. And that was the, you know, it was, it was more of an idea. It was a pipe dream until once the four track recording came out i mean we 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 were all kind of messing around on cuz gary had a stereo tape recorder and so did i and you could do sound on sound with those which doesn't mean anything to people recording digitally but but on a standard tape recorder if you record something like a stereo tape if you record something on one channel and then you listen back and try to record on the next channel it will be out of time it won't be in sync with the first channel, but even though you're playing in time. The fact is the the head that re- puts the information on the tape is physically located in a different position than the head that's playing back the tape. Mm. So so there's a time lag and that's consistent. It's always, so it wasn't until they came out with the 3340. Uh, TX 3340, that you had sync switches where you could flip that switch. And now you're recording on the same head that you're listening through. So what you play is going to be in time. And once we got that machine, then then we started recording things together. At first, I think there was one, one or two songs that John and Gary started recording uh, on their own um, that before I got involved, one was called Lovely, <laughs> Lovely Angie, and one was called You Are the Magic. And um, they don't even talk about those songs because, well, we don't. And even the first stuff that we recorded as a band, as Shoes, uh, was on Heads or Tails, uh, this album of 10 songs that we did. And we right. don't talk about it because it's so crude and so primitive. Um, but the, um, the box set that just came out, well, last was it last year? Yeah, I guess uh, in in the UK um, they did uh, a um, a retrospective. Uh, they did two two box set res- retrospectives. One was black vinyl anthology, and on that box set, two of the songs of the very first shoe recordings are on there. Two songs from that Heads or Tails record, but not Lovely Angie. Now, lovely, Angie, that predates it by I'll bet you that was maybe six months before we actually started doing a heads or tails. And then immediately after we finished heads or tails, Gary had to leave to go to France to finish his schooling. He was studying architecture. And um, so he was gone for the entire school year in France, which is when John and I decided, hey, let's surprise Gary. Show him how serious we are about this band. And we recorded uh one in Versailles and that became sort of the seed of that idea of this okay we'll take that that's a cool title what do we okay there, we, there's a there's a girl or there's a relationship that you've got with this girl she has to leave and she's going to France or, you know it, it it created this this this
0: uh, uh what do I say this this uh, playing field for us to to explore right so it's the one shoes records it's just you and John um, and yes. it wasn't really a record record cause it didn't come out, but
1: it actually it did. That was the first thing that we actually pressed up. Oh, you actually and pressed that one up. We pressed it up. What happened? Okay. And, and that was incredibly educational. Um, what happened was, um, when, when Gary was in France, I had moved out of my parents house, um, gotten my first place. And, um, one of the guys I used to go to school with, he and I moved in together because he started playing drums with us and uh, we set up the gear in the living room and, and we started recording uh, this this thing. And he had been in a marching band and I, he had his record collection at, at our flat. And I saw, wait a minute. What, what, what is this? You know, here's an album of your eighth grade band, marching band. And he goes, yo, yeah. You know, we did that when I was when, went to Central Junior High. So I looked on there. I'm like, wait a minute. So you don't have to be on CBS or Capitol to get a record? So I started making phone calls and found that at the time, Chicago had two pressing plans. So I called them up and uh, got a price. The minimum quantity you could do was 300 So that's what we targeted. And we thought, this would be great. We'll surprise Gary with this album. We'll press it up. What we didn't know was the fact like when they asked for information for the label, you know, the label copy, I just put it in my typewriter and I typed out the names of the songs and I sent it in when we got the finished product. And I look at the label, it's the type font of my typewriter on the, they just Xerox (laughs) and that was the label. I mean, that's when you start to realize, Oh, okay. There's graphics that you have to think of. You have to think of these things in advance. We printed the covers. But they weren't done in time. So what we had to do was we had to slit open the shrink wrap of every record and slide the front and back in uh, the printing of the front and back in because we didn't think to have that done before we we gave it to the pressing plant. You know, so it was a very learning, very uh, good learning experience. So wait, um, there
0: were there were 300 copies printed of uh, one in Versailles,
1: one in Versailles, the original pressing. Yes. And we did. Wow. Um, that
0: must a, be like a collector's item, I would think.
1: Yeah, yeah, they are. I mean, it's been reissued a number of times. Again, the Numeral Group did a great reissue of that um, quite a few years ago, 10 years ago now, but they did a really nice job. And I'm told some of them, some people say, oh, yeah, mine's on white vinyl. I said, white vinyl. That's really cool. Um, we did. There's a German pressing of it where they did uh, an embossed foil, gold foil emboss on the front in the title, which is cool. Um, and I, that's as a record collector, i um, I mentioned the, the, this painting of Silhouette that someone had done, the album cover. Right. And I, I said to them, well, this this is the French version because I'm wearing a red shirt and Gary's wearing a uh, kind of a magenta shirt. And that's the, the French version. The German version, I'm wearing a blue shirt. And what we did was uh, we colored Each country differently so that we could tell the difference between the German version or the French version or the English version. And they're all different. So that's what we love about the record industry, too, is collectability of it all. Um, Sure we did a single last year for, uh, a label. Uh, I think it's in Spain. You are the cosmos. Um, and it's just, it's just a one-off. I don't know how many copy, how many, there's 500, uh, limited edition of, and it's a little 45 picture sleeve of the ignition album. And there's, you know, two songs, uh, jokes on you and, um, wrong idea. And that co- collectability is, uh, part of what makes it fun. You know, that's that's again
0: why CDs don't have the same panache <laughs> growing up in Zion and and you guys getting to the point where you're making all these records. How did that how did being so Zion is a community? Uh, it's 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 on the lake uh, in the north, very northern part of. Illinois close to the Wisconsin border how does being there shape you guys and you know what are you doing that you're these kids there who are then making all these records in your basement well we were we were kind of the laughing stock of our friends because you know some of them were good
1: musicians very talented and we weren't uh, um so he's like oh yeah you guys were in a band <laughs> when's your next gig right and we weren't playing we were recording and learning how to play and learning how to sing and learning how to write and and do all those things at the same time but zion was founded um in the um the late 19th century by this religious nut it was it was a cult basically and the 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 town was founded as a commune and he owned all the land and leased it to the Tenants of the city. And I, I mean, I've got some incredible photos that uh, historically of the city where you couldn't do anything in Zion. So many things were illegal. You couldn't you couldn't play catch on Sunday. Uh, you couldn't hang laundry on Sunday. Because that was the Sabbath. You couldn't, uh, uh, you know, women had to be covered to mid mid uh, uh, forearm. Um, you know, e- even when I, we were growing up, uh, the stores closed on Sunday. Um, there was no theaters in town, no game rooms in town, uh, certainly no bars. Alcohol was illegal. Tobacco was illegal. Um, as a kid, you're not you're not paying attention. You know, I mean, we were listening to WLS and WCFL. AM. That's what our education was. And it wasn't until we got older that you start realizing, oh, my God, some of these laws are still on the book. The original uh, hardliners and, you know, they they had pretty much passed on. But a lot of the laws still existed. Um, So much so that um, in the mid 90s, Applebee's wanted to come in and build a restaurant and the city wouldn't let them because they served alcohol. (laughs) Wow. So, so to, musically speaking, there were no clubs, there was no music scene, there was really nothing to inspire us on that front, but we always set our sights on the, the albums that we had in our collection and what was that coming on the radio. And then when FM radio started happening, you know, then that's a completely different ball game. Now you're listening to, to underground stuff, uh, um, you know, bands like Love. Or, or uh, mm. you know, changes by Bowie or uh, God, I remember uh, John and I laugh about it. We had this um, record shop, head shop that we used to go to in the neighboring town of Waukegan, which was just great. Uh, experience to see this and you you walk in there and you smell incense and you see all these great new albums packed in and everybody's talking about what's you know this is really cool check this one out here's the new t-rex and so you know we we'd say uh mom my mom would say to us what do you guys want for christmas what do you want for your birthday and uh, john would say oh uh Love it to death by Alice Cooper. So my mom, my mom would go into these stores and come out with a, an armful of you know Alice Cooper or or uh, David Bowie, which was you know you know gender bender back then. And I I really respect my mom to have the the uh, the constitution I guess it was to go into this alternate universe and right. buy these things for us. And you
0: guys are in your late teens at this point?
1: Well, certainly by the time the boys stuff. Yeah, we were, we were in our mid teens. Um, Woodstock happened. I think um, I was, I wasn't quite 15 when Woodstock happened, Um, but we were, you know, to us, that was what we aspired to. That was a fantasy world. All that, you know, the music that was happening and and the culture was changing. And, and uh, um, of course the Beatles were, were, just they were the the touchstone for us uh and it really we brought that stuff in design even though you couldn't necessarily get it in the town or purchase it in town um you know we were you know radio chicago radio infiltrated us
0: were you guys doing any performing at all like open mic or talent show at the high school or any of that sort of thing we did our very first show um, as a
1: matter of fact, I just said this to John and Gary. Um, it was the, oh, that have been, We well, we did it in, um, April 8th of 1976 was the very first time any of us got on stage. And that was our first show. Uh, we played at the Brat Stop up in Wisconsin, Kenosha, which is actually uh, not too far from where, where we live now. Um,
0: right there on route 50.
1: Yep. Yep. And, um, the, um, so that was 76. That would be, uh, 46 years ago. That was the first show first. And, and the drummer who was my roommate, his name was Barry shoemaker. Um, his girlfriend wasn't real keen about seeing him on stage and she was, that was, that's the only gig he did with us. He quit the band after that and moved out. He says, you know, I, I, I got other things I really got to get into. I'm not as serious about it as you guys are. And, um, so he moved out and then we went on a search for a new drummer and we hooked up uh, with Skip, who was playing in a local cover band and um, happened to be dating Gary's sister. Uh, wow. So we we talked to him and we hit it off personality wise. And he was very meat and potatoes, straightforward. He wasn't Keith Moon. He was more Ringo-esque, which is, was more, more our speed. And um, he played with us for, uh, well, until 84. He He retired from
0: drumming in 84. Right, and uh, so that first show you did was that when Black Vinyl Shoes had been finished, which was the first album that got like more of a release. No, that Not, was that, or that that would have been before then because Black yeah. Vinyl Shoes was what seventy seven. Uh, Black Vinyl Shoes, we started recording in November of seventy six,
1: but it didn't come out until we finished mastering on May fourteenth of nineteen seventy seven. Because that's the serial number of the original release, 51477. And um, uh, that gig, the first gig was in April of that year. So that was a good uh, six months before we actually started recording Black Vinyl. Um, the amazing thing is, and again, we were talking about this too, because April has a lot of anniversaries for us. The first week in April marked the 43rd anniversary of when we signed our deal with Electra with you know with warner brothers and when we were thinking about it it's like so it was less than three years from the time we played our first gig until we signed our deal and we're, we're living in england recording present tense wow. <laughs> so it was it, it, it felt like forever but it actually happened pretty quick less than three years
0: to go from from nothing to you know being on the billboard charts so all three of you write and and each of those albums is pretty democratically divided among you guys. Has there ever been sort of a pecking order or was it always sort of like, you know, you, me, you, you know, it's like we're we're going to you know, divide it all up.
1: It was always democratic. We we, we were very uh, um, committed to each other. Uh, we're in a three man sack race. Um, nobody wants to have a, a Cadillac if the other guy's driving a Yugo, you know, and and as a matter of fact, it goes back as far as, um, I mean, you, obviously you can tell from the sequencing of, of an album like Black Vinyl Shoes, where it was 15 songs, three writers, five songs a piece. Um, like that too. I mean, yes. your last album. Oh, well, not exactly. Gary actually I mean, had, uh, one extra song and, um, the very last hot mess, one, hot mess was, a with a uh, co-write collaboration and so was um uh, say it like you mean it and say it like you mean it was designed that way um we had uh our drummer is kind of a that we've been using for the last 25 years uh john richardson is kind of a hired gun and he plays with a lot of different people um um one of the bands is the gin blossoms. And so, you know, we, we knew, got to know those guys. And, and, um, uh, I had Jesse in the studio doing some background vocals with uh, when I did uh, the Tommy Keene album, uh, isolation party. And so I, I kind of knew them and, you know, of course we liked those, the, their stuff. And we went to visit one time and, um, the lead singer was big. He goes, man, I got a I I got a copy of black vinyl. And he was a big fan. And so when I started this, the, the initial writing for, um, say it like you mean it, it was because um, uh, I thought, well, this might, this might be something the the gin blossoms could do. And I wrote the chorus and I, I, I literally just really recorded that just that bit. And I did a little riff going into it and I sent it over to John and Gary and Gary took the riff and mutated it into the body of the song. Really the, he used that riff as the as the verse section and then he wrote the verse and then John uh wrote the middle eight and we each sang each respective part so it was designed as a collaboration where hot mess was kind of uh, um, just literally the fastest song we've ever recorded. And the, maybe one of the most fun because we were almost done with the entire album ignition. And Gary said, look, I know we don't need another song, but I've got these chords. What do you think of this? And he, he, he just played it to, and it was just to a, to a drum machine at the time. And I, I listened, I said, Oh my God, I know what I'm going to do. Give me guitar. And again, this is the beauty of having home recording where you, I, you know, he, I plugged in I, and, and I started recording my bit and John literally is sitting next to me in the control room. He's like, I got some lyrics. And he started, and he was just trying to make <laughs> us laugh. You know, he's trying to make us laugh. So he's writing the lyrics and the, and the melody as I'm, doing my guitar part to what gary's guitar part was and we I, I got home from the studio about two or two thirty that morning and my wife still says you were still laughing when you came in the door i said
0: it was so much fun we just laughed our asses off working on that song so and, were you done with the song by the time you got home got home
1: no uh, no we decided that um it needed a uh, uh, instrumental break. So um, uh, Gary and I hacked out some chords that we thought would fit. And then I had to sit and figure out a solo that, that we wanted to have kind of a stonesy feel. Uh, oh yeah. No, that's yeah. your stone song. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, that, was, yeah,
0: that's John. You found um, the riff that Keith
1: Richards missed. so that was really a fun but all in all that was really a fun thing but again to go back to the collaboration thing right to keep to keep things democratic when greg shaw asked us to do a single for Bomp in 1977 he said i want you guys to redo a version of okay from black vinyl shoes for for the a side of the single so our you know when you have a single where you have side a and side b how do you make it even between three songwriters. Well, John wrote Okay. So, Gary and I co-wrote Tomorrow Night for the B-side. So all three writers were represented on this two-sided single, but as it turned out Tomorrow Night became the A-side and showed ended up showing up on uh, Present Tense as well. We, we re-recorded
0: it for Present Tense. And how did you guys end up uh co-writing that one? Cuz that's one of your most famous songs obviously.
1: It is, you know, um, I had started a bit, um, uh, I, I I say a riff kind of a, uh, if you listen to, to the song, there's a clean kind of a, um, riff that's going through it. Right. And I started with that and I just had, I didn't, didn't finish it. Um, and I was, I just referred to it as wonder wax, um, um, which didn't mean anything other than vinyl and, um, so when we needed to write a song i said well what do you think about this and so gary and i literally sat face to face with guitars and hacked out the 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 different bits and it was like da 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 okay and then and then it was like dun-dun-dun. you know so we we just literally it was very very uh complementary in the way that we worked on that um, i love compilations or i, I should say um Um, collaborations collaborations, because um, I like being part of a team. You know, I I enjoy that. I enjoy the camaraderie of of doing things together. Um, We all know, especially at this point, that, that we don't need to have anybody else play with us because we've learned enough to know how to structure a song and play the bass and play all the instruments that go into constructing a song. But we prefer to do it as a band, because we enjoy the fact that you get different input from from each person. It becomes uh, its own entity, um, you know, something separate from
0: just your your input. Did any noses ever get out of joint when I don't know the record company would say we want we want this song instead of this song for single, and you guys wanted to maybe keep it? Like, no, nah, it's it's not my turn. Um,
1: Yes, but not between us, between us and the record company. Uh, We would say, nope, that's not going to happen. We were very much into maintain because another thing the press loves to do is the fact there's two brothers, so of course they like to assume that that's the nucleus or that's the core, which is totally wrong. Uh, not only are we completely democratic in in doing things, but John and Gary were the original nucleus of the band. Um, I, I had, I, I I think I mentioned that I had I had released this book called um, Birth of a Band: The Record Deal and the, and um, the Making of Present Tense. Um, because about oh, maybe 15 years ago, I was up in my attic and found a bunch of color slides, transparencies, which you know, people don't know what that is anymore, but but they were color slides that I'd taken when we were in England recording present tense. And I, I thought, oh, I forgot all about these things. I never developed them into pictures. So I was holding them up to the light and it and and it looked like a documentary of recording. It was like, well, there's the bass drum with a an electro voice RE20 on the, on the kick drum. And, and here's the Marshall bottom with an AKG 414. And, and it, it became this document of us recording. So I, I, I put together this book, um, and self-released it. And, um, last year I reissued it as a 40th anniversary. And the very last picture in the book is of John and Gary on stage with cheap trick. Um, which was a huge influence on us locally because they were the closest club to us was down in Waukegan and Cheap Trick. this was their early spawning ground. So we saw them at the very early stages of their career. And so we, and we, you know, I won't call us friends, but we certainly are uh, 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 mutually respective. I mean, when we get a chance, we always say hi or vice versa. Um, I just had a guitar um, that I sent down to the, um, uh abraham lincoln um uh museum um because they they, did, they had this music exhibit and awesome. they yeah and they wanted something from from us to, to include in this exhibit and so they took this hamer guitar that i had custom made back in 79 and uh the guy the curator that was picking up the guitar said oh i'm on my way over to rick's house to pick up his He's he's donating a a two a two double neck guitar, and I said, "Well, say hi to Rick, you know, for me then." So a couple hours later, I get a text message, and and it's got a photo, and it's and it's Rick waving, and he's holding this guitar, <laughs> and um and the curator, and um so anyhow, to me, it was completely appropriate that the last page of the booklet would feature the nucleus of shoes. John and Gary singing with Rob, because what happened was the Cheap Trick played a uh, local theater here and I was out of town. But John and Gary went down to see them beforehand before the show. And Robin says, we got to get you guys out there to sing. Come on out and sing, um, you know, uh, uh, surrender when we
0: do surrender. So they did. And uh, that's so I use that picture as the last page of the book. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so so you you put out black vinyl shoes on your own and then you have the Electra albums. Were you known? I mean, because you're not playing out or anything, did it seem even though you, I mean Black Vinyl Shoes is basically your fourth album, even though it seems to most people like your first, right. You know, present tense for a lot of people was your first album because they didn't know the other one. Although obviously the other one was out, but was there's a sense from other people that's like, Oh, these guys are coming out of nowhere. Even though, even though you've been making music for a while, just because you weren't out the way that like cheap trick was out for instance.
1: Yes. And um, locally um, there was a lot of resentment because we didn't, pay our dues, you know, most bands, the, the, the Chicago mentality uh, for decades had been, you get out and you play and you play and you play and you play and you build an audience, you build it. And eventually a record label will notice you. And our approach was the exact opposite. I look at my record collection and I say 99% of these bands, I bought the record first and then I went to see them because I thought the record was good. Right. So that's what we wanted to do. You know, we thought. You know, you play to a club, and, and you know, if you can find a club that 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 can hold, you know, eight hundred people, and you pack it out, that's a good night. But um, you get a song played on the radio one time, and tens of thousands of people are listening at any given moment. So that made more sense to us. So that was our that was our route. That was our target was to get on the radio with with our music and then to do live shows to support that um and and we'd have to become sort of a cover band of our own material to to learn it okay now we got to figure out what parts we can we can do with just two guitars even though we might have had four on on the record and people would say to us oh you can't do that because you can't do it live i say well listen to led zeppelin You hear how many guitars are going in Stairway to Heaven? There's a 12-string acoustic, and there's a lead guitar, and there's electric rhythm. How many guitar players they got in Led Zeppelin? One. (laughs) So don't tell me you can't layer these things. The, the, The album is the art. That is the painting. And when you go live, that's when you're showing people This is what I look like when I do these things. But you obviously can't cover all the bases because you can't play four instruments at the same time. You have to pick out sort of a hybrid guitar part that fills all the as many gaps as you can.
0: Did you enjoy the playing out part of it?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it is it's like they always say, you know, the hour, two hours you're on stage is is great it's, it's the other 22 hours of your life that suck because you never sleep. Right. You know, you're, you're, you're always rushed and um, things uh, go wrong. Uh, we had horrendous, horrendous experience when we first started, especially right after we got signed with electric, we just did some terrible shows and, um, and because we're not very forceful singers, we could never hear ourselves sing. And I hear ta- old tapes and we're like way off key. I'm thinking, whoa, Thank God they've come with in ears, you know, earbuds. Man, that's a game changer. Um, the last, uh, uh, the most recent show that we did was in 2017. We played at the Arcada down in, in St. Charles, and that was great fun. I mean, we really enjoyed that and had a lot of fun with it. Um, but uh, we just, I mean, now it's 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 like you do. We do it um, if it's fun or if something is intriguing or we get a chance. I mean, like going to Japan, somebody said, Hey, you want to do a tour of Japan? And we said, sure. Okay. That, it's not, we've never done that before. Let's do that. I mean, that's kind of the way we approach the live stuff now.
0: When you often get uh, the, the label power pop is often, you know, associated with you when you started, were you thinking, Oh, we're a power pop band or when did that association start? Well, to, to, I mean, we weren't, we were certainly not aware of the, the term until,
1: Uh, More recently, I mean, the last I don't know how many, you know, maybe the last two decades they've been using the term power pop, even though Pete Townsend supposedly coined it back in 67 um, or 66, whatever year it was, um, we just wanted to make the music that we wish there was more of on the radio, the stuff that I wanted to hear Um, the Beatles had broken up. And to us, that was like the source of, of this, you know, this great uh, music. And with that gone, who's making that? Well, you say, okay, Badfinger. I like those guys. Well, then, you know, Pete ends up committing suicide. So that band's gone. Uh, So we, and and then big star, well, big star only did two albums. Uh, So for us, it was to, To do the music that we enjoyed the most. And it's great that there is a, I'll say a home for it, but it's also, it's, you know, any, any time you get pigeonholed into a label. I mean, for instance, most people would say that maybe the first power pop band is the Beatles. Um, But no band is completely one thing. I mean, uh, Revolution? No. Helter Skelter? No, I wouldn't call those power pop Um, great songs, maybe, but not power pop songs and, and, you know, or Blackbird power pop
0: pop, but not power. You know what I mean? So. Right. It seems like it was sort of the sort of the like like Badfinger Raspberries kind of when when the Beatles broke up and everything was getting kind of boogie sort of stretch stretching out sort of stuff and and stuff that sounded like the Beatles which had been so catchy and and commercial was now considered sort of like ah oh, that's kind of on the fringes like the idea of I mean Badfinger had their hits but but the, these that these bands sort of were keeping that flame alive but also with maybe a little bit of a more punch in the guitar sound or something like that
1: well I and he, even the Beatles um You know, to me, if I would point to one song and say this is the single that's to me heralded the beginning of Power Pop, it would be uh, Paperback Writer and Rain. That was right. To me, that's when okay, now you've got that combination of these cool guitar tones, uh, great chords, great riff, great melody harmonies. It was it's all right there. And um but but like I said, most bands weave in and out of it. For me, power pop is a category that's, that's this wide. Fleetwood Mac, yes. Lindsay's songs, you take a song like a secondhand news or Monday Morning uh, or Go Your Own Way. Those are power pop songs to me. Um, Foo Fighters. Yes, that's, that's power pop to me. Interesting. You know, so to me, uh, most of what I call power pop music fits into that same kind of David Bowie, Ziggy Startup. Yeah, that's that's uh, power pop stuff to me. Um, now it's come. I mean, unfortunately, most people, when they hear the term, they think of you know, bad imitators with the uh, Beatle imitators with skinny ties, you know, and that's that's not what it is um, to me. It's melodic music that's it's that's memorable. Um I mean, when I grew up, all music that was on the radio was called pop music, whether it was the Supremes or the Box Tops or Stevie Wonder or the Beatles or the Dave Clark Five or or the music machine. It was all in the classification of pop music,
0: you know. Part of what's so cool about Shoes is that you, John and Gary, you're three different songwriters, and oftentimes, if you have a band with three songwriters, there's like the one songwriter like I don't really want to hear that guy's songs or something. But all three of you are consistently good, strong songwriters, and 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 there's a shared aesthetic. So it's not like well, you know, one of you is doing like all the country songs or something like that. Like the, like you could tell the difference among your songs like you could tell which one's yours or which but they all fit together in a way that seems organic like you guys have been drinking you guys grew up drinking the same water you know it's like you all you came you were listening to the same records and you and you developed organically this aesthetic so that you know you're all writing the perfect you know three and a half minute pop song each time out or you know thinking about that at least
1: well, well thanks uh, one thing that that and I've said this I've caught heat for it I said we were we were lucky enough to never have a hit because w- what happens when you have a hit is it becomes an albatross around your neck I mean you know um you know the Kingsmen when they did louis louis uh how many other songs do you know for, by the Kingsman or do you care about by the Kingsman if you want to see a Kingsman concert what song did you want to hear and then after they play Louis louis everybody's heading for the exit, um, you know, or this, you know, one hit wonders there, there are a million of them that did great songs. There's a great song by, um, uh, by the Monroe's called uh, what do all the people know, but I don't know anything else by the band. And so when you, so that becomes a a, a weight around your neck. Um, the, the the great thing about, about um, people that, that, that we appreciate of our, our fans, I hate calling them fans. Cause that sounds, it sounds
0: um, i don't know you are fans it's okay it's not egotistical you're fine
1: yeah I, I, I feel weird saying that but but anyhow if you ask 10 people that are familiar with our music what their favorite songs are you're going to get 10 different album, or 10 different responses not the same song and that's what not having a hit does is it is people have gone deeper into our catalog. Um, I, I laugh because we, we sell downloads from our website, you know, shoeswire.com you, you you've probably been there and we can see when those things um, come in. Uh, and one of the most downloaded songs, strangely enough is do I get so shy from heads or tails? It doesn't make any sense to me. But I love it. I love it when people find something obscure and latch on to it um, or, or a track that's not the one that got the airplay, but becomes the song. I mean, even when we did um, when we did uh, Boomerang uh, for Electra, you know, they, they would say we would would say, here's the songs we're going to do. And I remember when we got to Curiosity, they said, don't do that song. We don't like that song. Well, we did it anyhow. And that is one of the most recognized songs from that album. It it just goes to show you, you got to trust your gut. And, you know, um, um, I've I've said this before. uh, There's a a mantra that um, um, third world countries I've seen uh, have. And they say, uh, it's better to, to die on your feet than to live on your knees. And that has been shoes. Because we don't compromise, uh, we, we you know we we try to be true to ourselves and play play nice with the label or with whomever with the industry. But the fact of the matter is, you got to trust your musical instincts. Whenever we we did what somebody else did uh, or said we should do, we were disappointed in ourselves. Uh, It's a no win proposition, because if they say dye your hair purple and wear a silver sequence suit and I can make stars out of you. Well, if you do that and you're successful, you're not going to feel right because it's not you. It's not your idea. And if you you don't do it and you fail, at least, you know, that, that it's your failure that, that it was i tried what i wanted to do and it didn't work uh, um, rather than doing what somebody else did because if they they tell you to do it and it works they think they're the genius and if you do what they told you to do and it fails then you said you think to yourself i should have done what i thought in the first place friend of ours presented us with a um, a painting they had done of the silhouette album cover, and they had done it with a, in acrylics. And we were comparing oh, wow. uh, art and how it related to songwriting, and how um, s- sometimes you have to have some a, a starting point. You have to have something. Sometimes it's a a a, 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 a cool lyric that you hear or a um a melody that pops in your head or whatever it is, that's that's what gets you started. Some you have to have some. And for us, it's I read interestingly, I read I saw that um McCartney 123. Right. Where you know, and he says he almost always starts with chords, which I think is really interesting because I sometimes it happens that way for, for me personally, but I think typically if you get a riff or a, a cool lyric m- more recently than not, I think that's what inspires me is I'll get a lyric that I say, well, that's kind of a cool phrase, you know, maybe I can do something with that and you end up writing it down and then you forget what it was <laughs> and where he put it and, and why it inspired you or whatever. But uh, yeah, it seems
0: like it always, uh, it starts with, with a seed of some, some sort. Do you usually start writing a song when you're trying to write a song or when no, you're doing I just- something else and then something, comes to you
1: yep it usually pops in my head i mean i was just going to say i'm not very good at forcing myself to write um uh, i haven't written much recently because of the fact that i feel uh well with shoes as a as a band we are in that kind of what do i want to say it's like a no man's land for musicians right now it's like being a, a chef with no restaurant Uh, You can make this great meal. You can write a song. But the question is, what do you do with it? And that's that's the question that when I talked to friends and other people, I said, if we had a complete album right now, what would we do with it? And I talked. I got a phone call recently from a, um, a Warner Brothers um, promotion guy. He'd been in promotion for 30 years with Warner Brothers, and we were talking, just kind of catching up. I hadn't talked to the guy in in 30 years, and I said, "If if we had a complete album right now, what would you say to do with it?" He said, "Dice it up into singles."
0: Really? <laughs> yeah. Which really. That's so disappointing. Me. Yes, exactly. And that's see, true. I would think that because vinyl is quote unquote back, I mean, everything's backed up. It takes forever to press vinyl. But, you know, the, the people who, you know, had behind black vinyl records, that was your label. I would just think that that the the album as a form has some currency right now. I don't want to hear a bunch of downloaded singles. I want to hear a record that I put on my turntable and and I experienced what I loved about music when you guys were putting out those early shoes albums. Because I feel like you can recapture that now and you can put it out on black vinyl or orange splatter vinyl or whatever. Yep. But obviously getting someone to you know, pay for all that and getting it at the pressing plant. That's what I would love to get. I'd love to get a shoes record that I could put the needle on.
1: You know, that, that's t- to me, that's where music is now is it's not so much about the music. It's about the packaging. The medium that you deliver it on actually draws more attention than the music itself, at least initially. You know, we still have CDs. We still have them available for, I think, every every album that we've done. Uh, we still have CDs available. Um, but for the most part, it seems that people want to have some type of I, I don't want to say experience, but I guess it's a. An excuse to buy it. The, the wonderful thing about vinyl was not only it, it it thrilled so many senses, not only was it the the tactile getting it, getting up to flip the sides over, you were forced to be involved. And right. but the smell of the PVC and that that when when you when you cut open that shrink wrap and, and you get that rush of that odor of the PVC vinyl, um, it, it just brings back. Um, uh, uh, these memories Uh, just like when we talked about um, the fact that we record at home, almost everybody records at home now. Um, And so do we, I mean, I, this is where I record and Gary has a place set up and we bounce tracks back and forth between us. And there, there was something, our studio short order recorder when we had that, which we had for over 20 years. And then before that, we had demo studios for probably close to 20 years the, the, the smell of the tape, you know, the, the, <laughs> the illumination of the meters and the, and the, and the, it was just such a tactile experience. You could tell the difference when you walked into a control room, if they were using Ampex tape or Agfa or uh, Scotch, they, each one had a different uh, smell aroma because of the adhesive that they used or whatever. And uh, those things, um, you miss that. You know, you may, as well as the camaraderie of everybody being in the same room. Right. Um, We do, we do a lot of stuff together. um, Anyhow, Uh, whether, whether we're playing, like when we record, we just did some background vocals for a friend of ours. And uh, background vocals are particularly fun because, you know, we're all huddled around a microphone and, um, you know, we'll, we'll stop, make a cocktail make a pizza, have some popcorn, whatever. And then, and then we're right back to it, you know, and, and um, we were, we were laughing at how we don't usually discuss much when we're doing background vocals, because we know pretty instinctively when to take a breath, how to phrase it, you know, how long to hold a note. Um, it, It just, it's, it's a natural thing. The three of us have developed over the years that you take for granted You know when you when you don't do it, and then you sit down and you haven't done it, you haven't done it for a while, and you sit down, and it's like you don't even have to think about it. It's 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 a great thing.
0: It's funny because I just talked to Chris Stamey, and. He was he wrote in his memoir and talked about just the smell of the different brands of tape. And I'd never heard that. And now you're the second person who's mentioned that oh. because you dealt with all this stuff. And, and yeah, the, specifically, like the Agva Tate smells different from the, you know, Scotch, Scotch and, or the, and Ampex. The, yes. the Ampex. Yes. Ampex. Yeah.
1: And, and and I was I mean, what, what attracted me to to recording in the first place from a child, was I love the mechanics of it. I loved having this little, my first tape machine was this little reel-to-reel that I got when I was eight. And I I was, because I asked for it, I saw it in a, in a, Um, it was in a drugstore. It was up behind the counter. I said, Oh man, I want that thing. That's cool. I was, I love the, the mechanical aspect of it. And uh, even recording into, I've got a four track tape machine here that you can't see, but um, like we had initially when we first started recording, I love the meters and watching those needles bounce and it's such such a tactile. uh, So it's, so it's electromechanical and, and the creative aspect it satisfies so much now you record into this black box and you don't know if it's doing Like we were just looking at to see if the zoom was recording. Is it on? Is the light on? Is the screen, you know, you don't, you really have no evidence that you're doing anything.
0: Yeah. There's no and, tape passing through anything. so right, You can't see right.
1: that happening. And, and um, one thing you tend to be more experimental when you're tactile, when I was thinking about one of my favorite uh, guitar tones is when it's run through a Leslie speaker. Oh, yeah. I love that sound. And it's a very mechanical thing, a rotating speaker and um, a stationary microphone or microphones. And it picks up that phase shifted sound that's that's caused because of the mechanical movement of the speaker. Um, yeah, you can get a plug in, but the guy next door has got the same plug in and he's punching up the same sound. What I love about the the that's why drums are so uh, um important in the recording process because you can change the position of that microphone by a quarter of an inch and it completely changes the tone of the drum. Uh, what you're in what you're hearing so so every every song every album every band has is forced to have a uniqueness because of the the microphone placement or the type of microphone they selected and a lot of that's gone now because so much of it is plugged straight in or they have a keyboard and they use the same patch that you know the guy down the block is using and what i love to do Uh, uh, is to start with the patch and then screw it up somehow, run it through something, distort it, um, really, really make it different in some way. So it doesn't sound like the standard patch.
0: I mean, you had short order recorder going for about 20 years, as you said. And then it seemed like from, from looking at it, that it was sort of a victim of this digital revolution in which everyone felt like I could do that in my basement and there's sort of a sad or, or in their bedroom or wherever, but there's sort of an interesting, sad irony in that shoes, you guys were pretty ahead of the curve in terms of the DIY recording yeah. on your own in the first place. Like you actually, you were doing that before people were doing it when it wasn't so easy to do it because you were doing it with the, the, you know, real to real, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, and that's, that's the thing that I said to people was um it went full circle for us. We started in our homes and then we went to the studio route and then we built our own. And then it went back to recording at home again. And there's there is a lot of good that happens recording at home. Uh, and that is, that's that's the great thing about it. Uh, years ago, we would record demos of songs um, and then show them to the label and then go in and have to redo the whole song. And you'd say, how did I get that tone? Or what did I, what guitar did I use? What was the part that And you'd have to reference the demo. And if we were working with a producer um, like Mike Stone on present tense, um, he hated it. He hated the fact that we kept saying, put the demo on. I want to hear what I did there. And, and it drove him nuts. (laughs) Uh, Where Richard dash, it was just the opposite. He thought the demos were great. And he, he loved the fact that that was we had this reference point. We could show him what we were talking about, what we were trying to do. And, um, you know, we've actually uh, since then released those on vinyl. Like you were saying, um, the numeral group did a, did a, a, um, a release of uh, the present tense demos and, and we called it pretense. And um, then we put out a CD. Well, actually, we put the CD out first called Double Exposure. And it is the demos for those first two albums that we did for electric present tense and tongue twister. And it was all the demos that we did before we actually did the master recording. Now uh, you don't usually have much of a demo because it's in a digital format. It's there's no tape hiss. And if you get something that you like, you, 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 you use it, you know, you can, you can build off of that because the quality that you can get at home now is so good. You can't tell the difference. Everybody's, recording at home or, or in, in uh, well, uh, God bless her, Billie Eilish. I love it. I love the fact that she is recording in her bedroom, in her brother's bedroom, and they're winning Grammys. I mean, that is, that is the fulfillment of a dream. And that's true, create creative input without all the, the, uh, interference from the outside world. When we had When we were signed with Elektra, I remember they would we we liked the fact when we did the first album in England because they couldn't just drop in Um, the second album we did in Los Angeles, which was obviously much closer to their home base. So so people would stop by. And of course, everybody wants to put their two cents in. Oh, you should do this or why don't you do that? And we would, you know, you humor them while they're there and then you do what you want to do after they leave. But it's that's the nice thing about working at home is you have this this cocoon of creativity that you can really you don't have to worry about what anybody else is thinking or or uh the the guy from the record company is bringing in uh, some local promotion guys and they want to see how you're recording drums or whatever and then saying well why don't you do that um we i got to the point literally by the third album with electra uh, we would lie to them. They would s- listen to something and they would say, that's a little bit rough. Why don't you redo that vocal? I'm particularly thinking of the song may day because uh-huh. um, uh, my vocal on it was, um, I was happy with it. I was really happy with it. It was very rough. And uh, at least for me, and uh, um, they didn't like it. They said, it's too rough. Redo. Really? That vocal. Yeah. They said, redo that vocal. So, john and gary and i and and we sat down and we talked about it and those guys said well what do you think and i said i like it and they said well let's leave it so we did and then when we finished the album took it to la and we had the listening party with the the vice president of all the different departments uh the person leans over and says now did you change that vocal i said yep and they listened for a second, and they said, "It just sounds so much better." Aren't you glad you changed it? And it was the same. Thing. <laughs> but that's what it comes down to, really. Everybody just wants to feel that they're they're the creative spark or the inspiration. <laughs>
0: Those three uh, electro albums you had: Present Tense, Tongue Twister, and Boomerang. Yes. Do you feel like those represented the essence of what shoes were there, or do you sort of prefer the demos at this point?
1: There's always something that you don't capture. Um, I, I, I use this as an expression. I say that when you do the demo, it's inspiration, and when you when you re-record it for the master, it's imitation. You go back and you're copying what you originally had done. And oftentimes you don't capture the essence of what the original was. It might be technically cleaner and uh, n- less noise and less distorted, but there's something about that original demo or you wouldn't have finished it. I mean, we're very self-critical. So if we don't like what we've done, we're, we throw it away and we do it again or we start over Uh I can give you some very specific examples. Um, One of the things that that we've had since the beginning of the band really was that we couldn't afford distortion boxes, stomp boxes initially. So I took the guts out of my first, very first tape recorder that I told you I had gotten when I was eight. I I took the guts out of it and used it as a preamp into my amplifier or directly into the tape machine, actually. Because the way it distorted it, it overdrove in this really compressed, but yet very cool harmonic way. And so we use that. That shows up a lot in shoe uh, guitars, like uh, the solos in the song Fatal on Black Vinyl Shoes or, or Your Very Eyes on Present Tense. Again, the guitar solo. That's the sound of that box. It has a very huh. weird, weird tone. And yet it did not sound as good plugging into this, you know, $150,000 recording console as it did plugging it into the $800 home tape machine because it, the electronics were different. It distorted right. differently. And the demo for the song, uh, Found a Girl, which which was used initially, the whole backing track was pretty much that guitar layered in harmony. Uh, John always said the demo. I like the demo version better. The demo sounds better. Um and uh, another example is on um, Your Imagination, the song Your Imagination on uh, "Tongue right. uh, Twister. The bass, I, I had started writing this song and recorded some bits down. And then I went away for the weekend, I was uh, left town. And John and Gary went in the studio over the weekend then and recorded some overdubs on this song. Well, when I came home and listened to that, it started off with this really cool, flanged and growly bass tone that started the track and really became the character of this song. Great tone. And um I didn't even know it was the same song when it started with it. When we went to do the final version with uh Richard Dashett at at uh, United Western, one of the best studio, probably the best studio, my favorite studio I've ever been in, in my life in Los Angeles. Um it didn't sound the same. We couldn't reproduce that tone. I mean, it's okay, but it just doesn't have the same character as that original. And it's just instinct. And when you're doing it, you just plug it in, oh, that's cool. And that's, again, that tactile thing, you grab a knob and you twist it until you say, there, that's what I want. That sounds cool. Now you have to kind of call up the menu. You page over to the right one. Then you, you know, you scroll up or you scroll down and then you, you, you add or, and then you listen and then you, no, that's not, and then you do it all over again. A lot of getting a sound to me is much quicker when you have a, a tactile, even an analog console or something that you can just grab and twist on.
0: There's a sort of happy accident that happens too. Like you didn't know what that sound was going to be when you plugged in that your homemade preamp. That's just what came out. And you're like, oh, cool. I like that. That's cool. Yes. And that's
1: the thing now, particularly because it is so much in the box. You know, you can get uh, drum programs. It's you, you, there's no way you can tell if it's a real drummer or not. They're so good. The samples are so, they are actual samples of real drums. So, um, but everything starts to sound the same. Everything starts to feel homogenized. I love mistakes. I love hearing my favorite part in, uh, um, um, you know, give me shelter by the stones is when Mary Clayton, when her voice cracks and you hear Jagger just, you know, he's like, Woo! <laughs> You know, he, that, <laughs> to me, that still gives me goosebumps on the back of my neck when I hear that part or, or on um, Grand Funk Railroad, we're an American band when he, the drummer's uh, singing it and he says, uh, uh, feeling good, feeling right. It's Saturday night and on Saturday, his voice kind of cracks. I love it. That's my favorite part of the song. And you wouldn't guess it to hear shoe recordings because we tend to be uh, perfectionists. And I think that comes from the fact that we're really not musicians you know, we, we, we're more songwriters. We think of ourselves more as songwriters and arrangers and producers. We learn to play what we hear in our heads or what the sound right. that we want. Um, so it, I'm embarrassed when somebody says, Hey, can you change the key of that song? Num- number one, tell me what a key is. Number but number two is I don't know how to do that. I mean, I guess I, I can sit down at, you know, long enough and, and figure it out, but, uh, we just, we all learned the same way. So we speak the same language. You know, I'll say to John, you know, that we used to call this one chord, we just call it the hunter just because we had this song we were toying around with 40 years ago called The Hunter that had this chord. We didn't know what the chord was. Um, it's just a different fingering of an A chord, but it has a, an additional uh, uh, open uh, string that. Um, so whenever we talk about that chord, we just refer to it as the Hunter chord. We don't say, Oh, play that A chord with the weird finger. We, you know, we we, we communicate the same way and other musicians, you know, we lose them and they lose us.
0: Yeah, you're still musicians because what you play your songs really well, and the parts are well thought out, and it's not like some sort of amateur hour thing. The stuff, the stuff sounds very professional, but you're not virtuosos. You play what you're playing is what's right for the song, but the song is the song is first and not the plane.
1: Yeah. Yes, and and to us, that's part of why we started the band was we realized at one point that, I mean, we were needless to say just hardcore music fans. I mean, we both we we still have huge vinyl collections, and and I probably got uh, my wife and I went through an organizational phase of my CDs, and we threw I won't say through away. Wait, we donated five hundred CDs to the local uh, thrift store, but I still probably have between two and 3000 CDs. I can't tell you how many LPs I have. Um, but we, that was our, our resource material was, that's how we learned how to play and why, what inspired us to play. But then we started to realize, Hey, um, you know, these songs are really only three or four chords. I can do that. I can, I can figure that out. And, that became very encouraging that rock music is, and that's what I love about rock music is it's music for the masses. I mean, I, I really appreciate a virtuoso. Um, but Todd, I think Todd Rundgren said at one point he could be the f- the fastest guitar player if he wanted to be, but it's like being the fastest gun in the West. Um, everybody's always trying to outdo you. And what's the point? I mean, uh, right? you know, and, 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 um, when i see my when I watch my wife react to music when when the 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 uh the noodling solo comes in she's done she's like uh, she has no interest in that she has she's not inspired by that as a listener and it, it is kind of a musical masturbation you know it's 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 like hey i got a chance to show off and i'm gonna do this if it's done tastefully it, then it means something but it, it seems like uh Sometimes they they jam as many notes in the space as they possibly can, just to, just to do it. Where I, I kind of come from that George Harrison school of of uh, guitar playing, where less is more, and I want to be able to hum that solo uh,
0: to myself. Right you know, uh, later on 10 years ago now, when you guys were doing ignition, I guess it was this would have been the summer of 2012. And I came up to Kenosha and I was down in Gary's basement and, um, his kitty cat psycho got out. And we were all like walking around the neighborhood going, Psycho, Psycho, (laughs) which was very funny. And fortunately, Psycho came back. But I remember we were looking in the basement for Psycho and someone came across this reel-to-reel box. And I think it was Bazooka. And I think it was Gary going, oh, they are the tapes for Bazooka, which was the album that came after the Versailles album. But I remember being there going, Oh, I'm here for this major shoes discovery. I didn't know there was an album called bazooka, but there were the tapes of it right there.
1: Now the bazooka album was never released until, um, we did put it out in 1996. We did a, uh, again, a limited edition CD called as is, and we didn't send it to the press, um, uh, because it was such a limited number. Um, yeah, I didn't get it. Yeah, we didn't send it out to anybody, and each one was numbered. Of course, again, manufacturing snafu, um, the numbering system got screwed up, and they lost a. We, we wanted to make sure we had a thousand, but because it was such a a complex package, it had a twenty four page booklet, and each one we 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 hand signed, we autographed every booklet. Um, the front had a an embossed stamp on it that was specially made for um, as is because kind of, we always thought that was cool on the Beatles white album that the, uh, the original version had the Beatles right. was was embossed and so, the numbers. So we hand embossed the the front of each booklet and then each one was numbered. Then there were two discs inside. One of them uh, had one in Versailles and bazooka on it. And then the other disc was outtakes and, and alternate mixes of different things over the years. And, um, what the, and I, when I sent them to the plant, I said, uh, okay, start putting these together with number one and going in, you know, in order in sequence until you run out. Because if you're short of just one thing, you know, there's two discs, a booklet, a tray card. If, if you run out of, one of the discs you're done that's it there's no you know it, or if you're if you're done if you're you know if any of those is less than a thousand you got let so we and in the printing world they consider a 10 percent above or below as complete so we said well let's order 1100 to make sure that we're going to get a thousand um well then what the pressing plan did was They didn't start at number one. They started at like 850. And then they inserted everything that the printer had given us, which I think numbered to like 1300. And then then they lost everything numbered before that. So they had to reprint from number one to number 850. So then they went back and they started at number one inserting. And then when I got to about eight or got to about 700 and something, we ran out. So, so there's, there is no number 800. There is no number 775. Those were missing because they never got manufactured. And, um, Unless you collected all of them, you would never know. Right. You would never know. But the reason I explain this is because we have had several people write in over the years say, wait a minute. This was supposed to be limited to a thousand and mine is number twelve hundred (laughs) and seventy five. That's how it is. (laughs) That's how it
0: happened was because the pressing plant left. It don't made a donut (laughs) and left a hole in the middle. We said they'd be numbered, just we didn't say it would be sequential. Sequential, yeah. (laughs) They were supposed to be. There are no 700s. No. Too late, too late. Too late to see. Too late to let you run away. So on August 1st, 1981, MTV went on the air. And the first song was the Buggles' Video Killed the Radio Star. What fewer people know is that the 23rd song was Too Late by Shoes. You guys are on day one of MTV, and we're actually one of the sort of early MTV bands. Did that affect you guys, or, and how? Yeah, we, we had uh,
1: the—actually, um, there were four songs played on the first day of MTV, um, they played all four videos that we had done. What happened was we came back from England in um, August, late August of 79, and they had video shows. We didn't have that in America yet. Right. And so that was cool. We were like, wow, that was really amazing. We came back and so they, the label said, we're going to fund four videos to send to the European market. So we, we, we filmed all four of them in one day, boom, 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 one right after the other on a soundstage in, in Los Angeles in October of 79. And um, and then supposedly shipped over to to York for promotion. Well, when MTV came on the air two years later, like you said, August 1st of 81, they needed things to play. And we just happen to have these four videos ready-made in the can. Here you go. Boop, here you go. And so they started playing them. They needed stuff to play. And our fan mail, and there I said it again, uh, went started going goofy. We start literally started to get stacks bundles of mail saying, I saw you guys on MTV. And, and when MTV ran an ad in Billboard, a full-page ad about, because they're trying to sell themselves to the industry, um, they mentioned – interviewing five different record stores and how they're selling records by bands that have never played in this area. And three of the five mentioned shoes specifically saying I'm selling shoes records and they've never played in this. So we take that into Electra saying, because now, you know, you figure by August of 81, the second record is already out you know, we're past the first album. That's what the videos were from was the first album. So we went into the Electra saying, Hey, we got to do some new videos. They're playing stuff from a year ago. This is off the new, let's give them something off the new album. And they poo pooed it. And they said, look, it's a flash in the pan. It's no big deal. Don't worry about All it. Right. And nobody's going to be watching videos. Yeah. They never funded another video for us. They wouldn't do it. And so what, out of frustration, um, our pals, um, from Madison, um, Uh, Doug Erickson and Butch Vig, um, we had produced their band Spooner and um, they had a small studio in in Madison and they said, hey, we're going to be hosting this local variety show. Why don't you guys come up and and be guests on the show? So we said, "Okay." so we took that clip and we sent it to MTV and MTV started playing it and immediately we got a call from electra's legal department they called mtv and they yanked that clip and they said that has to come from electra we didn't authorize this we didn't do it pull the clip so they pulled it off mtv what was the song uh in her shadow um, there's, there's, you can see the clip on, again, on, on shoes Wire, our, our website, there's a thing called, there's one of the tabs is shoe, shoe tunes. Um, and you can, um, uh, or shoe tube rather, I'm sorry, shoe, shoe tube, shoe tube. That's good. And you can go there and you can see that video of in her shadow that we gave to MTV. Um, but yeah, and Electra never, never, never did any
0: more. Uh, videos for us I don't, and de- I don't understand record companies i'm just going to make that blanket statement i just don't understand record companies like you have you have just made this really solid follow-up to your first album you have all these you know catchy songs on it you're getting played on the first day of mtv four different songs and then and i don't know like it doesn't make any sense to me but what do i know
1: well, record labels really feel that if a record doesn't happen in the first six weeks, it's not going to happen and they move on to the next thing. That's sort of their base mentality. And um, some records just take a long time to grow on you. I mean, to me and my experience personally is typically the song that I hear right off the bat that, that jumps at me is the one I tire of the quickest. I mean, you know, I, I love the Beatles. I love Ticket to Ride, but I don't need to hear it again today. 10 times and 10 times tomorrow, 60 years later. And that's what, what happens. They, they burn you out on the, on the one song. Cause they know that oh, you liked it at one point. Yeah. But you know, what's really more interesting to me now is to hear rain, you know, the B, the B side of something or old Brown shoe um, or, or something that that maybe wasn't the hit, but it shows a lot more depth. Um, and that's, but that's just the way record companies are. So that's the great thing of being independent. You can make those own decisions yourself, but you just don't have the the clout, the distribution or the
0: promotional, uh, funds to make it happen as, as big as they do. Right. Well, so ignition was your last album and that was. 2012, And that's a really strong record. I wrote, wrote about that album. I, I wrote about you guys uh, and the album for the Chicago Tribune. Um, but it's really was sort of remarkable to me how vital and fresh that album started. And it was recorded in Gary's basement. You guys had closed short order recorder. Um, but it's, you know, the songs are really strong and the sound is really good. Um, and you were saying at the beginning of this conversation, how you can make an album, but what do you do with it? So this is already 10 years ago, but did you feel like you were able to give life to that record? Cause there was already sort of that sense of, it was getting harder then.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, what, what we would have loved to have seen because we make longer records. We always have, um, we've always done at least 12 songs and as a result the vinyl it has a hard time fitting that many songs ignition would not fit on a single disc very well because it's a 55 minute record right so it would almost have to be It's a made gate- for
0: the cd era yeah.
1: yes but what 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 we had hoped to do because there's 15 songs we thought okay we'll record a 16th song and then do a double album four songs on a side you know, flame red or orange vinyl uh, because it's called ignition and do a gatefold. That's what we wanted to do. But the expense of it all. um uh, prohibits that when you're independent. I mean, it gets pretty expensive to do that stuff. Uh, so we, we did, we were happy with the press and everything with with ignition, but that is, that is the sole reason that there is, has not been another shoes record since that is, is that we aren't sure what to do. I mean, Gary has a solo record that he's been shopping and w- wanting to release um john and i and gary we all have additional songs that we've recorded that we would like to do something with but we just don't know the best way to to try to get it out there there's no definitive way to uh, um
0: to get it out there so do you have the next album's worth of shoe songs written
1: uh i wouldn't think so no no i i would say that we each have a couple of things that we're happy with. I mean, I recorded something, uh, just before the lockdown, um, I had gone up to our drummer has a studio up in Menominee, Wisconsin, which is like five hours North. And I went up there for a weekend, uh, to really to play on another friend's, uh, song. And I thought, well, as long as I'm going up there, maybe I should have something. So I, I tossed a song together and, I thought, you know, I really kind of like this, so I, I thought, well, okay, I got that, um, and then I've done a couple of other little things. I mean,
0: as you far had a as solo she, album, also, right? I mean, can't I believe a, that came yeah. out a little before ignition. Yes, that came out actually in two thousand seven,
1: yeah. um, and um, that was an experiment. That was the first thing really that I recorded outside of short order. Uh, at home on my digital equipment. So I was learning the equipment and I wanted to do something to kind of, uh, I don't want to say down and dirty, but I wanted something that was, that had flaws, you know, that wasn't perfect. That, that, that was, I've always loved em- the early Emmett Rhodes, uh, first two albums or the first McCartney album recording it at right. home. I love that, that mindset.
0: The one man that band my, thing.
1: Yep. That was my mindset on that.
0: I got to know Jim Ellison and material issue and you produced and recorded that as well. Um, And I just was, I just was in Minneapolis and I bought from uh, the mill city record store uh, from Rick Mank, actually, uh, drummer uh, from, you know, plays with Good Sweet and Velvet, yeah, and Velvet Crush, and they pre-pressed that record, so I actually owned that on vinyl, which I never did. I still had like the cassette that Jim had sent me of the original sequence, when it was I think ten songs, and Trouble was the first song, and you'd produced it. How did you get involved with Jim, and how do you look back on that whole experience? I I had started working with Jim. Uh, in I, I
1: was trying to remember I think it was 85 and um, short order recorder was at a different location and we started running ads because we had this we had built this studio literally the three of us had hammered every nail and cut every board and we built a studio for ourselves and then it got to the point then then we were thinking well you know it's kind of a waste that that it just sits here doing nothing um, when we're not recording. So we decided to make it a commercial thing and start to bring in clients. So I started to advertise in the Illinois Entertainer and Jim answered, you know, came up to record his band, which at the time was called Material Issue, but yet it wasn't the same lineup. It was two different people. Uh, Lance Towser was the bass player and uh, Danny Thompson was the drummer. And uh, we recorded, um, 16 Tambourines and Echo Beach. Um, I think we might've done a couple of other songs. And then Jim, you know, would disappear because he would just scrape up some money and come in the studio. So uh, when we decided to move the studio, we bought, bought a, a building and we moved it to a different location. Uh, Jim drove up to help us move gear. He was helping us hump, you know, the console and the tape machine and uh, he couldn't pay. So he, he gave me uh, a four foot, piece of track lighting as payment. And <laughs> uh and he says, I got these new guys now. I'm working with this, you know, so so they came in and every time he had a couple of hundred bucks extra, they would come in and record we'd, you know, do some recording, record a song. And um that's the first album was those demos, basically. And um, uh he called me up and uh, he was doing what we had done 15 years earlier, which was Get songs out there on your own label. People start noticing it. Get the press to write about your music. Um, they got a song. The first song they got out was uh, "Renee Remains the Same." Was right. on a yeah, it was song. On a, it was on a sampler, some kind of a college radio sampler, and XRT picked up on it and started playing it. And then Polygram discovered them from that. So Jim called me up and said, hey, Polygram wants to release the, the record. What do you want? What should we do to it to fix it up? So they came in and we, you know, polished off some of the if there was a rough vocal here or there, we fixed that. And um, that's the first album. I mean, that first album cost about six thousand dollars.
0: Wow. And, and um, still their most successful record. Um and then I, yeah, did... I think they added four songs from that original thing that I had. So I think like Diane was added to it and maybe mm-hmm. Chance of a Lifetime. Yep. There are a couple others. And um,
1: um, and then, you know, I did the second record as well. Um, and, you know, along the way, you know, I mean, you know, Jim was he said he, he looked at me as his big brother, which I, I got a kick out of. Um and i I jim was it could be very intense, but he was such an unabashed music fan. if he liked something, even though it wasn't cool to like it at the time, he didn't care if it was David Cassidy or the trogs if he liked it, he liked it that's and and I respected that he was a he was a true music fan and um I worked with Jim for ten years uh then for the third album, they decided they wanted to work, and I get it you know they didn't want to come up to Zion to work again um. And uh, they work with one of Jim's heroes, uh, Michael Chapman, who, you know, does sweet sweet stuff. But to me, what starts happening then was the inside or the outside influences. You know, uh, we didn't film. We didn't have the cameras that you have today where everybody's phone is a camera, a movie camera. And so there's not much footage of us working on those first two albums. But the third album by then, you know, they're they're at a studio and. You know, Rick Nielsen came in and did some stuff, and and um, uh, Chip enough comes in, plays bass, and and uh, Duff from Guns N' Roses. So it, it's becoming more of a party atmosphere. You know, like there, you know, oh, there's always a bottle of vodka in the fridge, and and to me, that's the beginning of the end of Jim, that's the beginning of Jim's downward spiral. To me, that's like there's a new documentary that's just come out. Um, I, I don't know that it's been released on Blu-ray yet, but. Um, called out of time, the Jim Allison story. And, and um, to me, and they don't talk much about the first two albums, they allude to them, but they don't really get into detail, but they really just focus on the third and say, gee, why didn't that happen? It was, it was uh, such a great record and it didn't happen and no one can understand it. And somebody asked me and I said, well, I said, you know, Jim and I, we, we understood each other. I worked with him for 10 years and, um, If you take if you make a cake and um, it tastes good and people like it and then you say, "Okay, I'm going to try something, I'm going to take the sugar out. It's a different cake. And I think the third album was a different cake. Um, And even if it was, I mean, uh, sonically better or the songwriting, you know, whatever, Uh, The success of a record depends as much on the promotion and the timing as as anything. So you can't always say, well, it's got to be better because we spent more money on it or it's got a big name producer that doesn't always figure in.
0: Well, and, and you could also say the material issue is the latest generation of power pop that we were talking about before. Absolutely. And you know, and you, you you could have also said to him say, Hey, look, Jim, we did really great records for shoes and they weren't huge hits either. That's just kind of that world for whatever reason. Um but you know, you can make a really great you know, International Pop Overthrow is a great record. And uh, you know, I really like it. A lot of people really like it, but it's not known the way, you know, the first Pearl Jam album's known. Right. It just is it's just a different it's just a different audience and just different paths these records take. And you can't call it.
1: When when we were working on the second album, the second material issue album, um, that song by the laws, There She Goes, which is a power pop song. You oh, know? sure. Great song. That did make it. That did hit that nerve and became a staple and something that almost everybody recognizes. And that's a power pop song. So um, I think Jim's answer to that was um, Next Big Thing off of the second record. Um, And so so you never really know what it's going to be that trips that you know, that wire and makes it hugely successful. But, um, there was, there was a huge backlash when we released present tense. We were, we, you know, we were in England when we recorded it and the knack happened while we were overseas. Mm -hmm. So when we came back, there was already starting to be a backlash because it started to be looked upon as this this cashing in on this formula or or, uh, you know,
0: Beetle wannabe kind of stuff. Well, they're really blatant about it, too, in their look. And exactly. Their, and their songs are kind of obnoxious, which yours were not. And it, and it kind of it kind of
1: ruined it for everybody. You know what I mean? It's kind of when the teacher says, OK, who's chewing gum and you're all going to be punished if the guy doesn't come forward. <laughs> That's kind of what the knack did. They they ruined it for so many bands. <laughs> they got that got, wrote great music like the guys in the Rembrandts, you know, or or or. Um, um, Uh, you know, 2020, uh, Dwight Twilley, there was a lot of really cool, uh, power pop music at that time that sort of got written off then as, uh, uh, but then you had someone like Tom Petty, who I think is also very power pop broke through and really made it happen.
0: So, so that's, you just don't know what the combination is going to be. I want to ask you about one more, uh, Zion artist, uh, Scott Lucas and local H. Oh yeah. How long did you work with them? Um, I did the pre-production work for
1: the first three albums. I did the demos that got them signed. And then I did the the pre-production for the next two records. And um, Scott it worked at the Subway Sandwich Shop around the corner from the studio. And, uh, you know, the bands would would go in there to get sandwiches and they'd say, oh, yeah, we're over working at at, uh, at Short Order. And Scott would say, oh, man, I want to get in there and work at some point. That's what I want to do is record. So uh, eventually he did. I mean, there's a song on I think it was on the first album called The. Uh, uh, mayonnaise and malaise which you know <laughs> directly influenced by subway and um you know as a matter of fact uh, uh scott has a uh a podcast as well and i did an interview with him um i think it was last summer um and we talked uh, you know about what was the best pizza in zion and uh um so yeah he's um i don't know that he comes back to town very often but uh we still they actually they they did uh, their third record with roy thomas baker who, right. you pack know, up the cats. Yes. Pack up the cats. And they were recording at Roy's uh, studio in uh, Lake Havasu, Arizona. And they rang me up and they said, uh, Hey, how, how would you and Lori like to come out and spend the weekend with us? Yeah. Okay. So we flew out and just hung in the studio. I mean, I had met Roy a couple of times once he was working with cheap trick at um, uh, Pierce arrow studios in Evanston. Do you remember that?
0: Pierce no. arrow. Yeah, yeah and
1: it was I the old known about that one, an old Pierce Arrow uh, car factory uh, that they converted into a humongous complex. I mean, it was huge and they had two gigantic Neve consoles in two different rooms. It was really had the wow. potential and Cheap Trick was recording. Um, uh, I can't remember which album it was. It was the album that John Brandt plays a uh, bass on. And Roy Baker was producing that. So I had met him then, which was in the early 80s. And, um, uh, you know, so it was we had a great old time, you know, and it was just nice of the guys to 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 fly us out and hang.
0: Cool. Uh, I I will also say that you're responsible for my favorite uh, Christmas rock song compilation, Mule Tunes. Yeah, That's uh, Yule Tunes is great. It's like it, it's it's just like all the bands that I like uh, at that time and and otherwise. But but you know, it, as I get very tired of Little Drummer Boy, but I do not get tired of the songs on Yule Tunes, whether it's Material Issue or Matthew Sweet or the Cave Dogs. Thanks, and and that was another one of those
1: spontaneous kind of, uh, ideas. We were always influenced by the Beatles would do these, these Christmas records. They, they'd send them to their fan club every year. And we thought that was really cool and a good excuse to do something. So, so it was really late in the year. I, I think it was, it was, um, August or something. Um, and I, I contacted a bunch of people that, like you said, I liked their stuff and they were friends. And, and I said, can you write, an original Christmas song and get it to us by August or um, October 1st. And I remember we had a party at my house on uh, Labor Day weekend and Jim, you know, Jim Allison from Material Issue uh, had, was, was just writing his and he's, we're at the party and he's, he's like yelling the lyrics in my ear because it's loud. There's music playing. (laughs) He's, he's saying, what do you think? Um, You don't have to say you love me. Uh, Merry Christmas. will do. And, and I, it sounds cool, Jim. Let's see what the music, where the music is, but it, we really Lucked out because there's some fantastic songs on there. Um, uh, one of my favorites by Kelly Ryan, who had never really had anything done before, uh, never been on a record, and and I think it might have been one of her first releases. And it was certainly her her first gig. She flew in because we did we had a uh, a show at the the old China Club in Chicago mm-hmm. um, uh, after its release, and we had a bunch of the bands that could make it come in and play their song. And she had never been on stage before, so she. But it's a great. Great song. And she's gone on to be an accomplished and, and recognized songwriter. And um, one of the other songs on there, the, uh, the guy uh, turned out to be a screenwriter. He wrote that movie Enchanted for Disney. Um, uh, you know, so uh, and of Who course, was that? Um, there's a song called "By Big People, Bill Kelly. He's from he's from Morton Grove and um, moved out to L.A. uh, a couple of years after the um, the Christmas release and uh, has done a number of shows, um, Premonition, Blast from the Past. And Enchanted are the three that pop in my head and he wrote those. Um, So it's cool that these guys and and of course Spooner's on there, which is Butch Vig, who come on. I mean, he's he's produced everybody in the world, right? All the great rock and And that was his band before Garbage. Right. Uh, and um, Doug Erickson was also in Spooner and he wrote that. And I, th- I think Doug sings the song that's on there. Um, so there's, it was really a fun project that came together together very quickly. And um, it was, I mean, because it happened so fast for a lot of people we wanted to involve, but we couldn't uh, because of the time frame. Uh, we, we of course, wanted to involve Cheap Trick. We we just couldn't get to them quick enough. Um, uh, the Smithereens, uh, it would have been really fun to do a, a second uh, volume of that concept. But by then, by the, by the mid-90s, independent uh, record distribution started to collapse. And that's why we shut down um signing other bands uh to our label was because we had no distribution anymore suddenly all these independent record stores were going away but uh but thanks yeah it is a great record i still love hearing it every year
0: yeah you got to do the big anniversary you know red and green colored vinyl reissue with the bonus tracks from cheap trick and whoever else you wanted to get on there
1: that would be fun that would be fun um, you yeah, we're, there's a couple of things we're working on now. Um, we, what we've been asked to do more recently is, um, uh, be kind of guest singers and featured on different songs by other people, which is kind of fun and easy. Um, and, and you don't have to worry about the distribution and manufacturing. <laughs> so, um, we just did a couple of songs for a friend of ours, um, and, uh, did background vocals on those. Uh, we did a thing with, the uh, do you know, the flash cubes from, um, uh, They're from New York. Uh, I don't. They did it. They did a cover. Uh, They said they were doing this this project where they're doing covers of all these different bands. They wanted to do a cover of Tomorrow Night and asked if we would sing um some bits on it so we sang the, the the choral vocals that we did and then I sang the second verse and, and used that little gadget I was telling you about and played the solo oh nice uh, and then um I've been uh, writing some songs uh, kind of long distance with uh, Rick Menck's bass player in the Velvet Crush is Paul Chastain who right was- Matthew sweet space player when he tours he lives in japan so he i got an email from him and said hey do you want to write some stuff i said okay so we were throwing stuff back and forth and and uh, we've got a couple things that we've done um uh, so there's a number of those little projects that we've been doing on this so even though it it appears that we haven't done anything for 10 years we we really are still doing stuff and if the situation presents itself in a way that we can make it work. We, we certainly want to do more shoe recording. There's no doubt about that.
0: Well, I would love to hear that. And, uh, I'll have to contact Gary and ask him more about a solo album too, and check in with John. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk to, to any of you guys. And, uh, cause you're just also like among the nicer musicians that are out there. I mean, you're just like uh. super supportive and fun and, and, uh, and, you know, and you've made music that really just totally holds up and, and, So thank you for that.
1: Well, thank thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. It means a lot.
0: That's it for episode 31 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Jeff Murphy for being so gracious and insightful while adding such tuneful songs to the world. You can buy Shoes music and merch at the band's website, ShoesWire.com. You also should check out the Shoes releases offered by the Numero group, including a collection of Present Tense demos. And if you could find it, get Jeff's book, Birth of a Band, The Record Deal, and The Making of Present Tense. Oh, and Rick Menk's Minneapolis area record store is called Mill City Sound, not Mill City Music, as I said with Jeff. And it's well worth the trip. Thanks to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and Lou Carlozzo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme, Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who puts much power in his pop. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter, at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, food, and also this Carol Pop podcast podcast. Thanks.